Well, for those who haven't been with us uh, for the last few weeks, we've been going through John's Gospel. In fact, for 37 weeks, we've been going through John's Gospel. And um, this morning, we land in the second half of John chapter 15. Just been looking at a few verses each week. And uh, just to remind you that these are the words that Jesus spoke just before he went to the cross, the day before he was crucified. Um, chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16 of John's Gospel, we call them the upper room discourse or the farewell discourses of Jesus when he was uh, giving his last words to his disciples. So these are very important words. They're his choice words. They're most uh, important words that he was imparting to them and therefore he's imparting to us. So I ask myself when I look at these chapters, are these, the, are these the things that I focus on in my preaching and teaching? Because they're paramount in, in the mind and the life of Jesus. And we should ask the question, are these the things that we focus on in our Christian life as well? And so we're going to read um, from John chapter 15, starting at verse 9. Jesus said, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, I, I think we could just look at that first sentence and if we meditated on that and let that sink deep into us, that would sustain us for the rest of this week and, and much more. Jesus said, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Wow, I mean, that's just uh, amazing when you, when you stop to think about that. The other week we said, um, you know, that uh, love has no beginning. Love never had a beginning because God is love and God is eternal. But, but love must have an object. So in eternity, we see the Father loving the Son. That's the source of love, the eternal source of love in, in the universe. And... Uh, you know, when we trace love back to its very beginning, if there, but there is no beginning, then we see how powerful this is, the, the Father loving the Son. Then Jesus comes and says, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Wow. If that really got a hold of us, uh, that would do us so much good. Jesus didn't say, I've loved you as a, as a husband loves his wife or as a mother loves her child. He said, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. And uh, we are united to Christ then in the strongest possible way. He loves us as the Father loves him. I'm quoting here from Charles Spurgeon, a uh, 19th century preacher. He said, beloved, you do not, dare not, could not doubt the love of the Father to his Son. It is one of those unquestionable truths about which you never dreamed of holding an argument. Our Lord would have us place his love to us in the same category with the Father's love to himself. 
we are to be as confident of the one as the other. What a tremendous foundation that is for our lives. So knowing Christ's love and discovering the extent of it is our foundation for living. Everything flows out of this. The key to seeing obedience in believers is not to teach obedience. I, I'm, I'm preaching this to myself. You know, sometimes when, when we want people to obey the word of God, we preach obedience. But that's not the way to get obedience. Obedience and fruitfulness are a byproduct of knowing the depth of his love. It's an automatic thing. You know, we love him because he first loved us. And the more we grasp that love, the more we want to do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Jesus demonstrated his love to the Father through obedience. How did he obey him? By doing his will. Likewise, our love to Jesus will be seen in our obedience to him, which is a response to his love. What, what is this obedience we're talking about? What well, we just saw. In fact, we, we're going to read it twice again already because we saw it last week, I think. What he asked us to do was to love one another as he has loved us. And, and, and that's a response to us knowing how much he loved us. Then it's easy to love others as he has loved us. Obedience leads to fruitfulness and fruitfulness leads to joy. Again, we said last week, we're talking about the vine and the branches and, and the fact that this is our identity. This is who we are. We, we are created to, to bear fruit, his fruit, to have his life flowing through us and to bear his fruit. Uh, I think Paul put it this way, that um, uh, God has created good works for us to walk in before the foundation of this world. We're destined to be a fruitful people. And um, that comes through abiding in Christ. So the Christian life is a life of greatest significance. When we, when we understand that this life that we have is God living in us and God living through us and producing fruit in us, that we are enabled to bear fruit for him, that's a tremendous significance. The branch that abides in the vine will never be barren. Cannot be. Cannot be. Cannot be. Now, Jesus said, you know, um, that his joy would be in us and our joy would be full. Nobody ever asked Jesus what he meant by his joy. You know, and we say, well, what are you talking about, your joy? It was something they were perfectly familiar with. They saw and observed his life through every kind of situation. They saw him go through a lot of trials, a lot of opposition, especially from the Jewish hierarchy. Uh, they saw him even, uh, you know, under death threats and, and, and assassination attempts. They saw him go through everything, but he never lost his joy. And, and so they, they didn't say, what are you talking about, this joy? They saw it and they wanted it. And he promised that it would be in them and in, in us. Abide in my love. Why did he say that to them? Because the disciples' love for one another was to replace their rivalry right up to this point. And this comes out in the other Gospels. You see that even when they were uh, celebrating the Last Supper together, there was rivalry at the table. They were jockeying for positions. Who is the greatest amongst them? And Jesus is about to leave them. <laughs> he didn't want them to be like that. He said, abide in my love. And, and he told us what love is. or how, you know, The greatest definition of love is that somebody would lay down their life for themselves. Selfishness is when we think it's all about us. 
We, we focus only on ourselves, but love is seeking the highest good of someone else. And, and Jesus wanted them to have his love in them so that they would love one another, even to the point of laying down their lives for one another. Self-sacrificing love. John said later on in his first epistle, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. That's how we know what love is. It's laying down your life for others. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Amen. Then he goes on to say, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. Actually, uh, Trevor phoned me this week and he said, uh, you know, under the new covenant, we're not servants, we're sons. And yet, Paul often introduced himself when he wrote his epistles as the bondservant of Jesus Christ. And, and, and Peter did in his epistle, and so did James, and so did Jude. So why did they call themselves bondservants? Well, they didn't call themselves servants, but they called themselves bondservants. And that, that's drawing from an Old Testament picture. Under the Old Testament law, if a Jew fell into difficult circumstances, he could sell himself into slavery as a very last resort. He had nothing else to give, and so he would sell himself as, as, as a servant to a fellow Jew. Not to a gender, but to a fellow Jew. And if he did that, uh, it was to be for a, a maximum of seven years. On the seventh year, he was to be released, totally released. And, and yet, some of these servants were treated so well by their masters, they were looked after so well, that the servant, when he was released, would say, well, I don't want to go free. I want to spend the rest of my life in service to my master. Nobody can treat me like he has treated me. Nobody has been so kind to me as he has been to me. And, and what, what, you know, if I step out of here, it's a, down, it's a downward step. And so I want to serve my master for the rest of my life. And so there was a, a bit of a ceremony that, that he committed to that. And, and that's how it is with us. We've been set free, you know. We're, we're, we're set free, but we say, well, I don't want to spend my life in doing anything but living for Jesus, being his bondservant, living for him, doing what he wants me to do, because that's the greatest satisfaction. So when Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, um, he was not getting away from that idea, but he was contrasting it to this thing called friends. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master's doing. That's the key. But I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. Says it again, repeats it again, this commandment, that you love one another. Now, we are not servants in that sense, but friends or partners with him in the greatest business on earth. And this, this is why he chose that term friend. He wants us to know how involved with him he wants us to be on earth. A servant is never given a reason for work. He's told what to do, but the master doesn't have to explain why he's telling him to do that. But a friend is privy to the intentions and purposes of the one he works with. 
You know, this is why we're doing this. This is what, this is what, what our objective is. This is what we want to achieve. And, and this is how we're going to go about it and so on. Now, there's a couple of examples of that in the Old Testament. In fact, as far as I know, there's only two people in the Old Testament that were called friends of God. The first was Abraham. Three times, in fact, he's called the friend of God in the Bible. And, and we see an example of that, for example, when, when God came down in human form with two angels. Do you remember that? And uh, they had a meal with Abraham. And then the two angels went on to Sodom because God was going to deal with that, that city because the, 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 the wickedness was so, so bad that he had to put a stop to it. But then God said this, he said, shall I keep from Abraham the thing that I'm about to do? No, I'm going to bring him into the picture. I'm going to bring him into my counsel, into my confidence and tell him my plans, what I'm about to do. And, and, and you know, we, we find then that Abraham got into intercession. See, with the father's plans. In accordance with, with what God was going to do. God brought him into confidence. What a tremendous picture that is. And God wants to include us in what he's doing. not going to keep us on the outer so that we haven't got a clue. And, you know, I mean, we look at the world today and we see that it's going crazy. <laughs> in many ways it's going crazy. But we know that as far as we're concerned, ultimately God is in control. And he's carrying out his purpose alongside what the world is doing. God is having his way. And he wants to bring us into that. Not get caught up with the world and how bad it is and how you know, scary the whole thing's getting. Not get caught up with that. But come into God's plan and, and be at peace and, and be, in, be a part of that. Now the other example is Moses. Um, in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, we read, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And uh, Moses had a tremendous close relationship with God. You can read about that, especially in the book of Exodus. Two verses later, Moses says this, Now therefore I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me your way. Show me what you're doing. That's what he was saying. Show me what, what, what you're, you're, you're planning to do. You brought us out of Egypt. We're, we're this great nation here. We're in the wilderness. What are, what are, you, what are your plans for us? What, show me your way that I may find grace, that I may know you and find grace in your sight. And later on, the psalmist commented on that. He said, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Now, a lot of, lot of Christians, they just want to see the acts of God, the works of God, miracles and, and you know, signs and wonders and all that sort of thing. And that's good. God does want to do those things. But you know there's something even greater than that? And that's to know the ways of God, to know what he's working through everything, because all things are working together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Many of you would have heard of John Wesley. John Wesley was a great preacher in the... Uh, 18th century. He was the founder of the Methodist Church, uh, but originally he was an Anglican minister. He did all his training, years of study, and uh, became a minister. And he went with his brother, Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley wrote many of the great hymns that we, we sometimes sing. And uh, they went as missionaries to North America. Uh, they're, 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 the goal was to reach the Red Indians with the gospel. But the whole project was a, a total failure. They came home in complete defeat and, and while they were coming back across the Atlantic in a boat there was a storm and, and on this boat 
there were a group of Christians called uh, Moravians from Germany. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the storm was pretty severe and their lives could have been in danger. But John Wesley noticed that these guys had an incredible peace. There's something about them. They, they, they knew God, you know. They, they, he knew that they knew God. And uh, to cut the long story short, he, he got talking to them and was invited along to a meeting in um, Aldgate Street, I think it is in London. And he went along there. And in this meeting, somebody, the, the, the preacher, began by reading the, the introduction, Lu, Martin Luther's introduction to the Book of Romans. And as he was preaching, John Wesley heard the gospel really for the first time. That it's all about faith in what Jesus has done. Putting your trust in him. And he did that as he was preaching. He was putting his trust in Jesus. And he said this. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. He said, I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone. That was his conversion. And then, you know how he explained that? Afterwards he said, he exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. Isn't that beautiful? He exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. Okay, let's move on. Jesus said, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Students seek a teacher of their choice. They go to learn and sit under the teacher that they want to learn from. But Jesus' disciples did not take the initiative. We did not take the initiative. It was he who chose, chose us. He found us. He drew us to himself that he might save us and that he might work in us and do his work through us. So success is assured when we work in union with him. Now in this passage you notice that he reiterates two things that we saw last week. Number one, the command to love one another because that ensures the flow of divine love. The father loves the son, the son loves the father, oh, sorry, so the son loves us the way that, that the father loves him. And then he says, you love one another. The, the flow of divine love, which results in fruitfulness. And he kept emphasizing that. Basically, he was saying this, when I'm gone, don't disband and work against each other. He knew what they were like. They were individualistic. They were ambitious and, and you know, opportunist. And some of them were like Peter. And everyone wanted to be kingpin. And, <laughs> and Jesus was saying, no, you love one another. You stay together. You're a body. You're members in a body. You belong to one another. No one's got it all. We need one another. We work together and, and, and the, the, we're the body of Christ and, and Jesus flows through us. And then he also mentioned prayer. He said that when we live like that, when we're so in sync with his will, we can ask what we will and it will be done. We get answers to prayer because we're in accordance, asking in accordance with his will. Amen. Now, Jesus changes the theme. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, the disciples, as we've just been seen, are, are to be known by their love to one another. But the world 
is known by its hatred towards those that love Christ. This is mentioned actually seven times in this passage. So we can't skip over it. We've got to look at it, okay? And when Jesus says the world, first of all, he's talking about the, 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 the word world is from the Greek word cosmos. It's the system of this world. The world is under Satan because man gave up dominion, gave it to him. So he's the prince of this world. He's devised a system called the cosmos. And there are many strands to this system, you know. You can look at things like uh, education, uh, uh, music, entertainment, the arts, finance, business. You can go on and on. And all these things are a part of the world system. They're all legitimate. They're all legitimate. God has given, God has given us all these things to enjoy. But know this, that Satan can use one of those strands as a bait to draw you away from God. That's, that's the cosmos, that's the world system. And then those who want to be drawn away from God and remain hostile to him, that's what Jesus is talking about, the world in hostility against God. And the word hate actually there, when he speaks about hatred, it's a fixed attitude, people that want to remain God's enemies. So this hatred shows itself towards those who will not conform to its world's worldview, its standards or its lifestyle. Have you noticed the world will not tolerate anything or anyone that is different? Do you know, um, uh, I think it was in the 17th, 16th or 17th century, in London or in England, the only people that would use umbrellas were women. It was regarded as effeminate. And, uh, and so, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the carriages, which were like the taxis, we're making a fortune because it always rains in London. <laughs> and so the only way you could stay dry was to grab a cab, you know, a carriage. Okay, but this guy called um, Jonas Hanway, you can check it out, or you can Google it, not now, afterwards. <laughs> Jonas Hanway, he was the first one to introduce, for, for a man to use an umbrella, you know. And you know what happened? People threw stones at him. And dirt and all that sort of stuff because it's different you know we don't do that but now all men use umbrellas yes you do you, they're in the trunk of your car they're in the boot of your car I know where they are but you know what I'm saying is it like the world doesn't like anything different and so that's not normal and then they attack it and this is what Jesus was saying we're going to be so different light from darkness that that those that want to stay in the darkness men who love darkness rather than light will oppose those who are in the light jesus gives us life a life of ultimate significance as i say his life flowing through us you could not be more significant living as we were created to be but this does not exclude us from persecution and when you read the Gospels, there's little or nothing in the Gospel records to intimate that the disciples were persecuted. It seems like Jesus guarded them from that and drew it all to himself. But after his return to the Father, he said, you will experience it now. I'm going and it's, you are going to be the focus of the persecution. Now, what happens often when Christians are persecuted is we think there must be something wrong with me. No, is that there's something right with you. It's the exact opposite. It would be wrong to think that we are to blame for the opposition of the world. For example, we, we might say, if only I was more Christ-like. No, if you're if you more Christ-like, you get more persecuted. That's the point, you see. 
The truth is the more Christ-like we are, the more persecuted. Now, two things I want to say about that, okay? Um, Jesus said, first of all, that the reason the world would be like this is because of ignorance. Because of ignorance. Because they did not know him, God, who sent him. Right? So I want to say this, that often the reason why the world opposes Christianity is because sadly, and I'm speaking in a general way, down through the ages, God has been misrepresented by the church. God has not been represented well. And so it's because they do not know him. That's why we've got one of our mission statements here is changing the way the world sees God. Because unfortunately they've had the religious version, which is often judgmental, critical, self-righteous, yeah, divisive, money-grabbing, all those things. They've got the wrong impression of what Christians and God is like. And so they, 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 they do not know him because of that bad representation. I discovered something this week. It's taken me a long time to learn this. You may have known it already. You know there are ten commandments? Did you know that the Catholics took out the second one? Check it out. You know? You know what the second one is? You shall not make any graven images. And then the tenth one, which is you shall not covet, they made into two. You mustn't cover your, your neighbor's goods and you mustn't cover your neighbor's wife, okay? So that's how they got their 10. I, I only just discover, check it out. Not now. Because <laughs> if I'm wrong, yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. And, and you know, that's, that's so sad because actually, when you go back into history, you find that there was a division between the Western Church and the Eastern Church. So you've got the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And one of the things they divided over were, was icons, images in the church. The Roman Catholics want to keep their images. And the Eastern Orthodox says, it's wrong. It's against the commandments of God, you see? Now, you might say, and, and some of you have heard me say this before, why is God so much against us creating images? Why did he say that? Don't make any, you know, graven image, painting, sculpture, whatever. Why did he say that? Because whatever image you come up with of God, you're going to get it wrong. Whatever you say, this is God. I say, no, he's not like that. You can't create an image of God. That's why Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. He's the true image. So if you want to know what God is really like, Look to Jesus. So that's why when Jesus came, he showed them what God is really like. They didn't know him because of the religious version. Uh, Israel was steeped in religion by this time, man-made religion. And uh, Jesus said, no, this is what God is really like. God is love. So that's the first reason. Let's look at the second reason. He goes on to say, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, and, uh, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So let's look at that. So this is the second reason. So the first is... People 
hate God because he's been misrepresented. They hate this caricature, this, this misrepresentation of God. But then Jesus comes along and reveals what God is really like. And yet some people, not all, but some want to remain in opposition to him. So this is what we're looking at now. They also hated Jesus because he brought the truth which exposed their sin. They hated him without a cause. Jesus did two things. Number one, he exposed their sin. But number two, he provided the remedy for their sin. Amen? He said, okay, all have sinned without exception, but I take all sin upon myself. I go to the cross to receive its judgment so that you might have the gift of forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life. So if people choose to remain alienated to God, you can't blame the church now. You can't blame the misrepresentation. Jesus has come and the image of God showed us what God is like. And some people choose to remain unreconciled to him. That's why we say they hate without a cause. There's no reason, no excuse for that. Why would you? Paul says that people in their natural state are actually haters of God. And their minds are enmity against God. You know, my belief that, that atheism, very few real atheists that genuinely do not believe in the existence of God. It's a heart condition. It's the people that have shut God out. They don't want God in their world. And so they look to, you know, silly arguments to say, oh, there, you know, nobody can prove God, blah, blah, blah. How much proof do we want? You know, it's, it's just overwhelming, screaming at us from every direction. Anyway, that's another subject. Okay, so in the church, he says, this is the message, love one another. In the world, expect hatred, opposition. So what's our response to that as we close? As we expect some measure of hatred and rejection from the world, we should first of all live in such a way that it is without cause. If people hate us, it's not because we have let them down. You know? Um, how many people hate the church because of pedophiles or because of the money grabbing image or because of you know there's the so many divisions and arguments amongst Christians so this is what Peter is saying here he says if you are reproached for the name of Christ blessed are you for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you on their part he's blasphemed but on your part he is glorified let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So first of all, let us live in such a way that if people are going to hate Christ, it's not because we've given them cause to. Amen. But secondly, if they do hate us, let us always respond with love. That's always got to be our response. I say to you, says Jesus, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, so that we may continue to do what Jesus did and show this is what God is like. He even loves his enemies. 
He even loves his enemies. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Amen? Amen. And of course, Jesus always brought us back to this point. We can't do this in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit. So he spoke again about the Holy Spirit who would come. He says, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So we must not see our task of loving one another and you know, just enduring hatred and opposition sometimes from the world as hopeless because we have the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the witness of the disciples did not begin until the Spirit came. They were, they were, they were cowards. They were in hiding. They were locked away in an upper room. But when the Holy Spirit came, they burst out onto the street and boldly proclaimed Jesus. So the, the Spirit's role in us is to reveal Jesus to the world. Okay, I'll finish up with this. Notice that this witness is in the context of persecution, as we've been looking at. The word witness, in fact, is from the Greek word martus. Martus. What, what word do you think we get from that? Martyr. The Spirit is promised to embolden us in our witness against opposition. Jesus said, when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you would speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And then Peter said this, we are witnesses to those, these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to pray together. And uh, I, I don't know you all here this morning, but let's just bow our heads for a moment. And if you, if you don't know the Lord, um, he's reaching out to you today. He loves you. It's not an accident that you're here. It's not a coincidence. God has drawn you here to tell you that he loves you, that he wants to save you, wants to be real to you and give you eternal life. Open up your heart to him as we pray. Open up your heart. And if you're doing that, why don't you tell someone afterwards? Tell the person you came with, the person that brought you. You know, I, I responded to Jesus today. I said, yes. To Jesus, I don't want to re remain an enemy or, uh, you know, uh, unreconciled to God. I want to be his friend. I want to be his child. I want to be born again. Father, we thank you for your great love to us. And Lord, forgive us, we pray, if we've looked to any other image to find a representation of you except for Jesus. He is the true and accurate representation of the living God. And we thank you that as we look in the face of Jesus Christ, we see God loving us because he loves us as the Father loved him. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who's a foreigner, a stranger to that love, that today they will open the door of their hearts, let Jesus come in, let the light come in, that the darkness may be dispelled. 
And for us, Lord, who know you, we just pray that, oh Lord, we will not give cause for anyone to reject Jesus. But that, Lord, we just be branches in the vine, bearing your fruit, letting others see your love and your life in us and through us. And should people oppose us and persecute us, may we even regard that as an honour that we're counted worthy to suffer for Jesus in this short time that we're here on earth. But we pray in all things, Lord, that you continue to bring people into your kingdom, to build your church. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.